Good morning again. Um, I wonder if you've ever felt like you've been put into a situation by God where you just felt completely out of your spiritual depth. Um, I feel this way all the time. Uh, As a pastor, I mean, particularly over the last two years, I don't know how many days I've woken up or how many Sundays I've stood up and I'm like, I feel like I am out of my depth here trying to navigate all that's going on in this world. Maybe for you, it is a ministry situation in the church where you've said, yes, I'll serve, and then you're like, man, I don't even know what I'm doing. Why did I say that? (laughs) Why did I say I would do this? Um, Or maybe it's something that you feel called to engage in with a neighbor or in the community, and even though you know your role in, in this world is to be a light for Christ, you're not really sure how to do that in this particular situation that you're entering in with a friend. Or it could even be closer to home. It could be in your own heart that there's something going on in you, inside of you. Claire just prayed about people struggling emotionally or spiritually where you know you need to address something in your heart, but you're not even sure how to get started or in your marriage or with one or more of your children. I wonder if you've been there where you know the Lord is calling you to engage, but you know simultaneously that you are out of your depth. Well, the disciples felt this way too. They had just come back from two chapters of journeys. Uh, In Luke 9, Jesus calls out the 12 and sends them out. I preached about that last week. He sends them out without the resources that they thought they needed and God provided. In the next chapter, God calls out the 72. So the 12 plus 60, they go out. They are also called without resources and the Lord shows up and provides in amazing ways. And so they get to this part of the story and the narrative, Luke 11, and they realize something. They see Jesus praying. And after their journeys, they recognize there's something that I need to learn as a disciple. They learn that if Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, then why in the world am I not praying? (laughs) I mean, if Jesus is praying... Who is God? Who I've just seen him do all this stuff. If he's praying to his father, then why in the world am I not praying? And so they ask a really important question to Jesus. A great question. After they go out and after they realize the limitations of their own personal resources, after they realize they are out of their depth, which they are out of their depth, we're always out of our depth, by the way. Like there's actually nothing you can do to change anyone's heart. You can't change your your kid's heart. You can't change your spouse's heart. You can't change your neighbor's heart. You can't even change your own heart. In all of the matters that you face in this world that matter the most, you are powerless. And so when we're called to follow Jesus and we're called to extend his kingdom on earth, we have no power Our power comes only from the Lord. And so the disciples ask a great question, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us four things about prayer that are essential for us to know as we carry out the mission. So first of all, Jesus teaches us about the undergirding theology of prayer. The undergirding theology of prayer. He starts about teaching us our theology. Now, theology is a big word. It just means the study of God or the doctrine of God. And so as we get into studying theology, what we're talking about here is who God is and and what are his attributes. And so Jesus is helping us see 
how our theology matters in prayer. First of all, he says that God is our Father. He is our Father. And so when we approach God, the, the Lord God Almighty, the King, the Lord, he is also our Father. So when we approach him, when you approach our Father, now many of you, I mean, none of us had perfect fathers, and many of you had very imperfect extremely imperfect fathers. In fact, none of us had fathers that really compare well to God as our father. And yet we are, we are told that we need to, re-un- to re-understand what it means to have a heavenly father in, in heaven who loves us and who cares for us. And so we, we should be approaching the Lord as our father. This is the language of the most intimate of relationships. Oftentimes we interact with God somewhat transactionally, uh, as if he's a distant figure there that we need things from and we go. And, and that's why our prayer lives, that's one reason why our prayer lives are so brutal, because it's like going and talk to your boss. You know, how often do you want to go have a conversation with your boss, unless you really have to, right? So you kind of avoid that. But if you have a father who really loves you and cares for you, then you you can at least imagine, even if you didn't have a good father, that you would want to go and talk to them. If you knew you had a father who cared for you, you would want to enter his throne room or his, his, his place where he is and ask him uh, for help if you had a loving father. So how is it that God has become our father? Well, he loved us enough. He didn't just uh, forgive our sins somehow uh, in a distant way and transactionally. He actually sent his own son while we were still sinners, God didn't just say, I love you, and that's it. He actually sent his son. He actually sent his son and then calls us his sons. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, to pay for our sins. And in our state of sin, he doesn't just forgive our sin. He actually calls us his bride. So God, he sees us as his own son. He calls us by the most intimate of terms, and he brings us into his family. So if you have this theology of God as Father in your heart, one kind of diagnostic question that you can ask yourself is, are you experiencing God's love for you? Are you experiencing the, the state of being forgiven by God? How much does, does being loved by God characterize your relationship with God? Or is that a for, kind of a foreign idea? In, in, in the reality of your heart, when you think about interacting with God, you really don't, you don't think about how much he loves you. Or it makes you feel really uncomfortable to think that God loves you because immediately you start thinking about all the reasons why he shouldn't love you. Okay, you need to understand, you need to embrace and come to terms with the fact that God does love you. He does. He really loves you in all of your sin and all of your weakness because he has sent his son for you to die on the cross for you. He has paid for your sin, and he loves you and welcomes you into his family. So God is our Father in heaven. That's the first part of our theology. The second part of our undergirding theology for prayer is that God is worthy of our worship. So he's not just our Father. He's also uh, this, 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 this one, this person who is worthy of our worship, which says, Hallowed be thy name. Even though God is our Father, he is also the one to whom the angels cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It may be hard to reconcile those two images in your mind, but there's that language of intimate relationship 
and this language of, of being holy and being distinct from us in a way that where he deserves all of our worship. We should sometimes think about God in the terms of Revelation 1, where as Christ is standing there, the resurrected Christ is standing there with a head and hair like white wool, white as snow, with eyes like a furnace and a voice, the sound like the sound of rushing waters, the word of God extending from his mouth, the sun shining in all of its brilliance. We need to see our God as this transcendent being, not just as an intimate being as well. He is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all things. And so he is worthy of our worship. And this is the God you pray to when you pray. The third part of the undergirding theology that's presented to us is that God's kingdom must come on earth. It should be our obsession as Christians that God's kingdom would come on this earth. We recognize that since Genesis 3, we have been uh, engulfed in a struggle between good and evil, light and darkness, Satan and God, where in Genesis 3, Satan, uh, he, he dealt a blow that was brutal to us, where we were covered in sin, we were marred with the sin of Genesis 3. But ever since Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and even actually before that, uh, God promised that he would do that, and he had been working redemption. But in Christ coming and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, Christ has now dealt the final, the death blow to Satan. It's not quite the final blow yet, but he's dealt the death blow to Satan. And so we live in this time where Christ's kingdom is coming on earth through us and through the church. And so as we look at the evil in our world, we also understand that there is good at work, that there is redemption at work in the world, that there is grace at work in the world. And so as we pray, we need to pray as those who long to see the kingdom of Christ this kingdom of redemption, where death is worked backwards, where resurrection becomes our reality, where in the end, as we sing, we will feast in the house of Zion, we will sing with our hearts restored. We want to see that restoration coming in the world around us and in our own hearts. And so the theology that we pray with, we need to understand that we're involved in this meta-narrative that's bigger than ourselves, where we are engaged in a struggle against evil where Christ has already won the battle, but it has not yet been finalized. John Stott says that the church is not just a called out people or a called together people. We are also a sent out people. We are a sent out people. We are, we in some ways as a church should function like a doctors without borders team. We should be willing to go to places where other people are not willing to go Why? Because we believe that God is behind us and he is extending his kingdom through us. Even though we ourselves are powerless, our God is able. And so our undergirding theology is God as our father, he's worthy of worship, and his kingdom is coming. And so we pray in that way. We pray to God as father. We pray to the one whose name is hallowed, and we pray to the one who is king and and whose kingdom is coming. So that's the first instruction that Jesus gives when he teaches the disciples and us how to pray. You need to have the right theology undergirding you. The second thing Jesus goes into is the daily needs of a praying Christian. The daily needs of a praying Christian. So most of life is not lived in the monumental moments. 
Most of life is not lived uh, at the mountaintop. It's not lived in the day that you get a promotion or the day that uh, your wife says that she'll marry you or these, these moments that are epic moments, these epic trips maybe you get to go on uh, sometime. They're not, it's not lived there. Most of life is lived on the Tuesdays and Wednesdays where everything is just super normal and average. It's most of life is not lived in the monumental, it's lived in the mundane. And so Jesus teaches us to pray in the dailiness of life. The first thing Jesus teaches us to pray about is physical. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now bread can be taken literally, but it really sums up everything we need for sustenance in life. Everything we need, we need to pray about. It's a gift from God. And Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It underscores that we need God's provision every day. That on those days when you feel it, you feel like, wow, I don't know if we have enough. I don't know. It's, it's there that you need the Lord. You pray, Lord, help me now. I need you right now. I was watching a drama on TV not too long ago where the wife looked at her husband and said, I can't imagine waking up in the morning without being anxious. I would give anything to have that kind of life. What would it look like for you to live in a world where anxiety is not oppressive to you? What would that look like? I know that that is part, part of what we look forward to in heaven. Uh, there will be no anxiety in heaven. Good news. It will be gone for sure. But what would it look like now, today, to face our anxieties? Well, one reason why we're so anxious in this world is because we're not so much focused on our daily bread as we're focused on having enough for tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow and next year and next decade and enough money for me to pay for all of my kids to go to college right now and how's that going to happen and how are we ever going to retire and everything else. Well, Jesus says, well, that's a lot of where your anxiety comes from. You know, what if one day I get cancer? What if one day, what, if, what will I respond like on that day when my parents pass away? What will it be like? On that day, and we get so obsessed with about the future, and it's hard to trust the Lord for hypothetical eventualities that might or might not ever happen one day. And so we're taught to pray also here, give us this day, our daily bread. Much of our anxiety comes because we want not just enough for today, we want enough for tomorrow. And Jesus says, you need to trust me for tomorrow, and I will give you what you need. Ask me for what you need today. So the first daily need was physical, and the second daily need we're told to pray about is relational. Jesus goes on in Luke 11 and says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. This is going to get a little bit personal, all right? It's one thing to pray for bread and for money. It's another thing to pray that you'll be able to forgive others who have hurt you because God has forgiven you. But this is exactly what Jesus says. This is not in an obscure place in the Bible, may I remind you. It is in the Lord's Prayer. It is in the very, very, very short prayer that Jesus uses as a model prayer for all prayer. This is core to the gospel. This is core to what Jesus 
teaches. Do you know who will be with us in heaven? Everyone, everyone who has received the grace of God and the forgiveness that is offered to us in the gospel will be with us in heaven. I hear people say sometimes to, about people in the church who have hurt them, you know, I'm just so done with them. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. You are categorically not done with them. You are going to live with them in heaven forever. And that's the good news of the gospel for you. You know what? Because God is calling us to take the forgiveness that we have experienced from God. How great were our offenses to God? You know, maybe that's your problem. Maybe you actually don't think your offenses to God were that big. They were, they were not that gross, that deep, that perhaps unforgivable, it seems. But they were. they were. They were real bad things that were going on in your life when Jesus loved you. And yet he did, and he loved you, and he gave you his forgiveness. And he didn't just give you his forgiveness, he made you his son so that you can call him, or daughter, so that you can call him your father, So forgiveness is the basis of your relationship with God. And forgiveness is the basis of our relationship with others in the church. You know, we've all been through a lot in the last two years. I guarantee you that every single person in this church and in every church has been offended or hurt by someone else. I also hear people say, I would forgive them, but I'm just so hurt. Every single time someone forgives another person, they are hurt. There is not a single occasion where forgiveness needs to happen where there has not been hurt. Now, we need to distinguish between the difference between forgiveness and trust, okay? You are commanded to forgive, commanded by Jesus in obedience to the gospel to forgive. You are not commanded to trust, Trust is rebuilt over time, or it may not ever be rebuilt over time. It may be unwise to trust this person who has hurt you, but you are commanded to, tr- to forgive. You're commanded to forgive in response to the forgiveness that you have been granted by Christ. Now, that may be a process for you to walk through, but the, the goal of the process, the end game of the process needs to be forgiveness. It needs to be forgiveness. Now, you may have a fear that what if I get involved in this conversation with this person who's hurt me, and then they hurt me worse. They actually begin to accuse me of things that are false. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is in the descent. He is in the descent. D-E-S-C-E-N-T. E-N-T. D-E-S-C-E-N-T, all right? He is there. He is there. Jesus is in the downward mobility. He is there. If you want to find Christ, you can find him in being falsely accused. Can you not? Can you not find him there? Can you not find him there? You don't have to defend yourself. Jesus Christ has already defended you. He is there. If you want to identify with the cross, put yourself in a situation where someone might accuse you of things that aren't true or maybe they're partially true, and you can rest in the gospel. You don't need their approval. You need Christ's approval. And that is the power you need to walk into situations 
where someone might hurt you again. Now, I'm not talking about cases of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, okay? Don't go there. You, you stay away. You come talk to me or talk to someone else, and we'll give you specific counsel about that. I'm talking about the everyday, hurtful, difficult things we do to each other when we don't act like we should in the church that need to be forgiven or else we just parse out into like a bunch of different weird iterations and we're not unified together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to forgive. He calls us to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. We might as well go ahead here on earth and forgive because we're going to be spending eternity with all of those people. Praise God. He doesn't let us get away with our hard hearts. So that's the, the second thing he tells us to pray for is to pray for our daily needs, our daily needs. The third thing he tells us to pray for is the daily dangers that we face, the daily dangers that we face. When is the last time that you prayed, not in corporate worship, like when Claire just prayed it, but in your own heart, Lord, lead me not into temptation. God, lead me not into temptation. John Owen, who was a great Puritan writer and preacher, openly wondered how much less people in the church would fall into sin if we would often pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal in Matthew 26, 51, said to his disciples, pray that you do not enter into temptation, and they fell asleep. And we have fallen asleep at that call by Jesus as well. How often do you pray for that? How often are you tempted, on the other hand? Hmm, a lot. <laughs> you know, maybe we should pray this prayer. How often do we face temptations that we would not otherwise face if we had prayed, Lord, do not lead me into temptation? Why don't we pray this prayer? Well, first of all, three reasons here potentially. We are maybe theologically confused. Maybe we're so resting in the sovereignty of God as Reformed people that we don't think we need to pray this prayer because if God wants to bring us temptation and that's his sovereign will, then why don't we just let him and then that's what God does because he's sovereign. And then we have to learn to live in the reality of whatever God wants. That's not what Jesus says at all. He's saying here that if you pray, lead me not into temptation, that there are some times when you would not face temptations if you would have prayed that prayer. And so we should pray, we should pray that we're not led into temptation. Led into temptation to do what? Well, first of all, let's read the passage in context. When we face the temptation not to forgive other people who have hurt us, it comes right after it. I think it's there for a reason. We are tempted all the time to be offended by people, to carry around grudges, to not forgive. When we're tempted not to forgive and to not practice the grace of the gospel, we should pray, do not lead me into temptation, Lord. Do not allow this foothold to be in my life. What are other temptations we face in this world? We face temptations all over the place in this, this world. We could be temp tempted to, to gossip about someone, slander about someone. We need to pray, God, lead me not into temptation. To get extremely real, there are nights when we are tempted, particularly men are tempted, um, in ways that we would use the internet or log on to Netflix or Amazon or take your pick 
of whatever service, streaming service that you want that's at your fingertips and to fill your heart with something that's not going to satisfy you. I'm not going to go into explicit detail. I know the kids are here. You don't have to take the kids out of the room. Um, But there was a night the other night uh, when I felt tempted. And so I texted four other pastors and said, pray for me. I feel like I'm being tempted right now. And ask me in three days how I, how I responded in the moment. I need your prayers. Two of them immediately texted back and said, thank you so much for texting me that because I have also been tempted recently. And we prayed for each other. And there's something about bringing the darkness into the light that it, it's powerful. Well, first of all, I know that these other pastors are going to ask me in three days what's going to happen. The chances just went to almost zero. But also by bringing it into the light, there's this, there's this effect that the light can shine into the darkness. Listen, if you're struggling and you're alone, you, you should not struggle alone. In fact, if you're struggling alone, then you will fall into temptation. And you need to reach out for prayer. You need to reach out. Temptation itself is not a sin. You may be ashamed of being tempted. Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan for 40 days. And we know Jesus never sinned. There is a way of being tempted that is not sinful. But if you do not reach out for help, you will be too weak on your own to follow Christ in that moment. So one, one reason is we could be theologically confused. The second reason is we may not be very serious about holiness. I mean, if we're honest, maybe we actually in some way enjoy the sin. And we don't know what our life would be like if we didn't have that sin in our life. If you regularly gossip, and that's how you connect with people, then it's also the relationships that will be affected by that. If you regularly, um, again, I'm going to be intentionally vague, fill your mind with things that aren't supposed to be there in your heart, and, and it's been there for so long, and you've become dependent upon it, you wonder what your life would be like without it. So maybe we are not very serious about holiness. J.C. Ryle, in his book, A Call to Prayer, said this, Can we really believe that people are praying against sin night and day when we see them plunging headlong into it? Are we serious about, Lord, lead me not into temptation, or do we sort of enjoy the danger. The third reason we may not pray this prayer, Lord, leave me not in temptation, is we don't really believe we have a, a real adversary. We don't believe we have a real adversary. Who again, as Claire prayed, John 10, 10, is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. We don't really believe that. Jesus also taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Jesus believed there was true evil. And I've shared this before, but if you weren't here, I'll share it again because I love this story. Before I went over to China as a missionary, we had to fill out this crazy long test called the MMPI. It's like 800 questions, and it's maddening. It takes like four hours. It's all yes or no questions. Uh, Do you ever lie? Sometimes lie? Never lie? You know, lie? There's like nine different questions about lying, and you're like, ah. Um, one of the questions is, do you have 
an adversary? Do you, or do you have a mortal enemy, I think is what it was. And of course, the answer you need to put on the test is no, because they're not thinking through the, the lens of, of Scripture. They're wondering if you actually feel like someone's following you, trying to kill you. Um, and so, but we do, as Christians, actually have a mortal adversary. We actually have someone who is trying to track us down. And so where this comes down to it, though, because we can't see our adversary, is there's a battle that goes on in our minds. I listened to a podcast sometime during COVID um, by a guy named Brad Young called The Place We Find Ourselves. And he made a point that I thought was excellent because Satan can also, he knows the Bible. Satan knows God's word. And he also knows, the, he knows what's true. And so he can often say things that are true to you in your mind, but those things that, that he say that are true, he's, is actually his aim is not to, to build you up, obviously, or to redeem you. It is to destroy you, is to accuse you. Here's some examples of that. You have a hard time forgiving people. You have a hard time forgiving people. Now that could be said, that, that may be true of you. That could be said by Christ, the Holy Spirit in you, the Spirit of Christ in you. It could, it could be said to you in such a way that it's true, and the Lord is calling you to change. It's, it's, a, it's a redemptive voice. It's a voice of love and care. You have a hard time forgiving people. Follow me. Or it could be said in a condemning way. You have a hard time forgiving people. You don't understand the gospel you are a worthless Christian or, or whatever, you know. Or here's another one. Now that you've done blank, fill in the blank with some kind of sin, you're in real trouble. Hmm. True. I mean, you are. I mean, that could be God saying that to you, to call you, to follow him and tell you, remind you of how much he loves you and forgives you. Or it could be Satan saying, give up. Give up and do it again. Keep on doing it. You'll never be free of this. Or how about this one? You know you have a hard time following through on your commitments. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. But you need to listen. What's the difference? You need to listen for the tone of voice. This is what Brad Young says I thought was so helpful. Is the voice speaking to you, try to detect, is the voice a voice of love and care? Is this the voice of your Father in heaven who loves you? Who is speaking to you about who you are? And speaking truth to you? Or is this a voice of condemnation? Is this an accusing voice? This is a voice that hates you, that wants to destroy you. You need to listen for the tone of voice. I thought that was so helpful. The tone of voice. We, all, we also speak to ourselves. <laughs> we, we say things to ourselves. So we need to learn to follow Christ. We need to learn in that place of the mind, in the battle of the mind, to listen for the tone of voice, because we do have an adversary. We need to pray, Lord, deliver us from evil and follow the Lord out of that place. So that's uh, the, the danger of the Christian. The fourth area that Jesus teaches us to pray in the final area is Jesus's encouragement for a praying Christian. This is the final verses, 5 through 13, but I'll, I'll go a little bit faster through this section. So an Anglican pastor named C.J. Vaughn said this in the mid-1800s. If I wish to humble anyone, I ask him or her about their prayer life. <laughs> I love that. If I wish to humble anyone, and uh, 
that's an interesting pastoral strategy there, I guess. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, so as soon as we start talking about prayer, we're like, oh man, like I got a lot of room to grow. I've, I've seldom met a person who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm really thriving in prayer. I feel like I'm really knocking it out of the park. I think we all feel the need to grow. So three encouragements for us as we pray. First of all, our God is like a friend at midnight. <clears throat> Verses 5 through 10. So in this first story, there's a, a man who has a friend arrive at midnight. And in that ancient Near Eastern culture, you're supposed to have enough food for your guests or it's embarrassing. And so I don't know if he didn't know this friend was arriving. He forgot. Maybe he and his wife's Google calendars didn't sync up correctly. Um, that never happens. And so anyway, the, the friend comes and he doesn't have food. And so this man, whose friend has arrived, goes to a neighbor and asks him for bread. Now the neighbor, it's like midnight, right? And people in that day and age go to bed early whenever the sun goes down. And he's, they sleep in one room with their kids. So this is super uncool. This is like super, super uncool. This is like cashing in all of your neighborly chips and asking for, this is way beyond asking for an extra egg to make your brownies. This is like really putting them out. Um, and at first the friend is like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting up right now. What is this guy doing? That's insane. But he keeps on knocking, and eventually the friend gets up and gives him what he asked for. And Jesus says, I am like the guy who gets up eventually. And that's supposed to be encouraging. We would like for him to get up immediately. I'm in a place here where I need your help. And Jesus sometimes waits. Like he's, like he's not responding immediately to what we ask for. But Jesus says, I tell you because of the, this word impudence, which is a word we don't use, but it means persistence that he does get up. Now, I've, I've, there's other places in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I don't like repetitious prayer, rote prayer, meaning you say the same thing over and over again, um, like some memorized prayer. That's, that's what that's talking about. This is a persistent prayer. This is beating down God's door and saying, I need you to do this. This means that after we pray one time for something, we don't give up. We keep on praying, and eventually the Lord responds. I'll tell you who is persistent in my family. It's my dog. My dog, I didn't know this. I, I, somebody should have briefed me about this before I got a dog, but that dog will not give up until it gets what it wants. It will keep on asking me. It has no sense for stopping. And it's like a, maybe a small child um, who just, if, it, if, it, if the child needs to eat, it's going to let you know until it's fed. It's going to let you know. You will feed the child. You will, on your trip, figure out a way to find a place to stop, or you'll go to that store and find a, a pump so that your wife can have it, or whatever it is, man. It's like going to happen. The child's going to eat. It's going to happen. And um, we need to learn something from children or from my dog. You know, it's like the friend who calls you two times, three times, four times, and you're like, and you're like in a meeting, or maybe it's your parents, and you're like, this better not be a pocket dial, man. You know what I mean? And you know, sure enough, usually for me it is my dad walking around a grocery store uh, buying stuff, but 
But when someone calls you and you answer and they actually need you, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dialing God up and telling him what you need. When I was in China, Olivia and I were in China as missionaries, the campus ministry that I was a part of um, became known for something unusual. We had a lot of male leaders who came up and began to serve and grow and and lead and actually plant churches and do all kinds of things. And so the national director called me one time and asked me uh, to report to him on what strategy we were using to raise up male leaders because we must be doing something strategic in order for this to be such an aberration. And so I met with my team and talked with them, and our answer was, we came up with was, we are doing nothing differently with men than we are with women. Nothing. Um, but I told him, he was, then he was like, well, then what do you do? Tell me, walk me through your week. We prayed as a team an hour every single day for an hour from 1 to 2 p.m. So we prayed, sometimes we took off the weekends, between five and seven hours a week as a team, and we prayed specifically for the men. And I believe that's why God, that's, that's why God responded and gave us leaders, the leaders that we needed, is because we prayed. Now, the, the guy that I reported to, the national director, I don't think he loved my answer because it wasn't something, it wasn't a program you could put in place. It wasn't like if you do ABC, a, then you'll have this happen. Um, I, I think, I don't know if you liked it, but, but the answer was, I believe, that we prayed. The second encouragement that Jesus gives us is that God is better than the best of fathers. We've already talked about this a little bit. But he talks about how a good father, if you go to him and you ask for something, he's not going to give you what you don't need. He's not going to give you the opposite of what you need. If you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. If you ask, you, if you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a scorpion. But yet, why do we walk around with this complex, like some of us walk around with this complex that God is out to get us? Like we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like we've had a good run, and yet God at some point is just going to like, you know, really, really discipline us and, and punish us for something. I feel like that, that our view of God needs to change, that God is a good father, that he loves us. He's not out to get us. Even, even decent earthly fathers, even if we end up um, doing things that damage our children, and I think we all do. You know, I always tell people I think every single one of our kids will be in counseling in their 30s. I think that's just the way it goes. It's okay. Um, but none of us as fathers or mothers actually intend to hurt our children. That's the last thing we want to do. Maybe kids, you'd be surprised at that. But the last thing we want to do is hurt you. The, the thing we want to do is help you more than anything else. And if we as earthly fathers who are just decent want that, then what does God want for us? He wants our good. The final thing that is encouraging for us here is that God says that if you pray, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And this is such an encouragement that if we pray, God, give us the Spirit. Now, we already have the Spirit indwelling us. We know that from places like Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We already have the Spirit. But there's something about asking for the Holy Spirit, meaning that we want to walk in step with the Spirit. We want the Spirit to fill us. We want to do your will, God. We need your encouragement, God. Would you fill us with your Spirit? It's, it's really encouraging that God says, if you ask me for the Holy Spirit, you can, I'll be, it's a guarantee 
that I will give you the Holy Spirit every single time. There's never a time when you ask for the Spirit that God's like, he's stingy and he's like, no, I'm not going to do that right now. He's not going to wait on that one. He's always going to give you the Holy Spirit. Finally, last thing, uh, conclusion here. I hear the, the children uh, rebelling. Um, so in 2012, there was a book written by a guy named Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. And in that book, he talked about keystone habits. Habits like brushing your teeth. It actually has a disproportionate impact on your life. Better example, like setting your alarm clock. If you do it, people tend to, their lives tend to go better. If you don't, mm, not as good. A keystone habit in the Christian life is prayer. It's prayer. And so would we, would we open this window in our lives more frequently for God to, to send his spirit to us, to give us his grace? Would we more frequently think of the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer for us, where we would pray to God as Father, where we would say, hallowed be your name. We would think about his kingdom coming. We would pray for daily needs. God, we, we need this today physically. We need this today relationally, spiritually. Would we pray that God would not send us into danger And I guarantee you that we will be encouraged if we pray more like Jesus taught us to pray. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that in this passage you you give yourself picture, give us pictures of yourself of a God who is our friend, a God who is our father a God who loves us deeply, who longs to provide for us, who yearns to help us be free from danger, who sees the situation that we find ourselves in and speaks gospel truth, truth that is loving, caring, words of comfort, words of action, words of grace. Lord God, I thank you that you are our friend and we pray to you that you are there for us. I thank you that we have many opportunities to pray. Lord, our life is filled with moments when we need to pray. Lord, I pray that we would quickly run to your throne of grace, that we would often run to your throne of grace because you are there for us, Father. I pray that you would help us to become more of a praying church. I've been encouraged recently by um, prayer meetings that we've been having more frequently and in prayer, I hear about happening in the church. Would it happen more and more often in our individual lives and in our corporate life as well? I pray in Jesus' name.